So welcome everyone. Today on the podcast, we have my great friend, the co-founder and CEO of Relief, William Wong on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, before we start, let's deal with the usual. Nothing said here is to be taken as financial advice. Myself and my relations may or may not have positions in the projects interviewed on this podcast. Do your own research, guys, and this podcast is simply for educational and entertainment purposes. Having gotten that out of the way, let us dive right in. So Relief is a decentralized music NFT platform for creators and fans that offers streaming and NFT launching, trading, and curation functionalities. Relief's music NFTs offer premium digital experiences to the artist's most passionate and loyal fans. From a limited edition releases and exclusive live chats to metaverse events and VIP concert tickets. Let's talk a little bit about music NFTs um, because we are familiar with uh, the old NFTs. Well, not old, that old, but um, the traditional OG uh, historical NFTs, which have mostly been JPEGs. But right now we are talking about music NFTs. So what is the difference? So the difference is that um, instead of having a JPEG inside a metadata file, you have, well, a music file. So that's a music NFT. Isn't it fantastic? And I think a lot of people think that music NFTs are going to be the next big thing. So Delphi has recently uh, published a uh, essay elucidating their bull case for music NFTs. GBV has recently published a piece uh, talking about the idea of a the model of a master copy stream that could replace uh, masters in music. Um, and Forbes, Motley Fool, CoinDesk have all recently uh, published essays on why they're bullish on NFTs, music NFTs. So music NFTs could really become the big uh, next big thing, if it could deliver the promises of um, more equitable uh, income share to musicians and uh, fulfilling the great human need of um, music. So let's talk about that. But to start, I suppose it's prudent for us to uh, ask for an introduction of yourself. What was your background? How do you get into crypto? And what motivated you to build Relief? Sure. My name is William, and I'm the co-founder of Relief. I have another co-founder called Aaron, and he's the tech lead for this project. So basically, we co uh, we co-founded Relief because we thought that the existing tooling in the music NFT space was inadequate. In a past life, I was actually an independent musician. Actually, we had a band, a rock band that played psychedelic rock, uh, inspired by uh, Arctic Monkeys, Jimi Hendrix, and The Doors. We loved what we were doing, and we were performing in Hong Kong to a local audience. Essentially. The local audience didn't react the way that we wanted them to, and we failed to retain and engage those fans. We wanted to expand abroad to a global audience. So the internet became the natural forum for that to expand globally. Um, you know, the Web 2 tools just didn't cut it, and we wanted to uh, go to a Web 3 space and start promoting our music there. But, you know, the Web 3 mu music tools right now also don't cut it either. A lot of these music NFT tooling it treats music NFTs as collectibles instead of the great potential tools that are potentially available to musicians. So for example, uh, what we hope music NFTs will do is to allow for artist discovery, to allow for fan engagement and alternative avenues for distribution. To us, these are very important elements of music NFTs. So I hit up Aaron uh, and knowing he was an evangelist for NFTs, and you know, I just heard about his victory in the Nifty 2018 competition and his uh, very bullish position on NFTs at the time, which at the time it was DeFi summer. So you know, he was one of the only, uh, one of the one of the few people, one of the few devs who were actually as bullish on NFTs as as I was. And so we came together and 
uh, created this project called Releap. Essentially, Releap is actually four parts. The first part is a launchpad where musicians can actually debut their tracks as a set of NFTs. So these tracks are never before heard. And so the fans will ape and they will buy the NFTs just to listen to the track and they'll get a chunk of the track. Uh, there may or may not be a legal right behind it, but the point is that the fans are part of the song's success. The second part is a really big exchange. Really big exchange is a marketplace where fans and collectors can sell and buy NFTs that have music. Uh, down the road, we may or may not uh, incorporate an experiential element to it. Um, definitely the point of music NFTs is to allow people to collect music, but utility is a very important part of music as well, uh, of these NFTs as well. And so down the line, uh, there will be integration with other forms of utility. Um, it just, the NFT exchange is built on Solana, the most performant chain, and allows for people to buy and sell these NFTs. The third aspect is the social profile, where anybody co collecting their wallet will be able to have a profile where they can share their thoughts and feelings on tracks. They can show the, the gallery of music NFTs that they have. And for artists, they can actually post exclusive content that only the NFT holders can buy. Yeah, can, the, only the NFT holders can see. And finally, there's okay. there a music player where we fetch uh, media from Arweave, and uh, this music player uh, performs with very low latency, meaning that you can sort of stream on the fly, you can stream on a mobile network, and it will still work uh, very, very well. So in just really this, these four elements. Okay. I think um, let's talk a little bit about Web2 music. Um, I'm not terribly familiar with how it works because I'm just a consumer, not a producer, not a creator, sorry. So um, what's wrong with Web2 music? Like um, what's wrong with the tools? How are musicians being treated unfairly or mistreated? Or how is their experience there subpar? Why should they launch on Web3? I suppose this is a chance to evangelize. Yeah, I mean, Web2 tools are not built for revenue generation. They're, not, they're also not built for fan engagement. What they're built for is exposure. So a lot of musicians do find success in Web2, um, but that doesn't translate to financial rewards. So a lot of uh, my musicians' friends actually have a lot of streams on Spotify, on SoundCloud, and they're able to gain a community from that. They're able to amass and accumulate a community of supporters, but they simply cannot monetize. So the analogy I always use is this, streaming to a musician's point of view is just like busking. You don't actually expect to earn a lot from busking, certainly not enough to make a living wage. Streaming allows for artists instead to reach the audience that they want to reach, but uh, Web3 actually allows for artists to monetize on that success. So an artist's journey will be having uh, sort of an audience on a Web2 platform like SoundCloud or on Spotify. And then they'll be able to engage fans by selling these music NFTs to these fans and offering that additional content to the fans who buy these NFTs. Like one of the arguments I've always heard um, with regards to Web3 anything, be it music or publishing, publishing or um, games or uh, in, in fact, Web3 anything, is that it cuts out the middleman, right? What do you think about that argument? Um, I'm not a particularly expert in music, so perhaps you can go through and talk a little bit about the middlemen that exist in the Web2 ecosystem. Or okay, I think that I think that creativity 
must come from the creator themselves. When we talk about the creator economy, it means empowering creators to make decisions about their career based on their interest alone and not anybody else's interest, especially not those who leech on them to profit. And a lot of the music industry previously has been a history of record labels exploiting these musicians, taking cuts where they should not be taking cuts and justifying these profits by saying, you know, you're, I'm the only avenue for you to distribute this music. So if you leave me, you're going to be left with nothing. So a very significant and notable example is Taylor Swift removing her entire catalog off Spotify. This is a clearly a case where she was dissatisfied with so to speak, or the platform, giving her an unfairly small share of her success, recognizing uh, or downplaying her success um, in a way that, you know, she couldn't take anymore and she, she took her entire catalog off. So I think offering another choice for musicians, an alternative for them to monetize is very, very important, especially uh, in an economy where we put creators' creativity first uh, before any sort of profits. Where I do think some intermediaries add value is with the marketing and with uh, you know distribution that actually uh, makes sense, right? So with these some intermediaries who justify their value by saying, oh, uh, we're helping you release uh, these CDs, we're helping you uh, release in these physical formats, that's not, not good enough of a explanation or a uh, or raison d'etre for them. Um, rather, they should be focusing on helping musicians uh, find the right team in order to uh, implement their musical vision, as well as uh, the best marketing avenues in order for them to reach a, a larger audience. I think um, about this unfair uh, distribution of um, profits, I sometimes wonder if it's really unfair or if it's just there's no money to be made under that model. Like um, one of the things I've realized, or maybe this data is not correct, but um, what I've uh, learned quite recently is that apparently Spotify has not been profitable for years until very, very recently, like last year. And they are the biggest, right? Everybody listens to Spotify. Everybody uses Spotify. Every musician and every ordinary person who wants to stay sane listens to Spotify. Still, they're not making any money. They don't have profit. So perhaps that speaks to the fact that um, this whole model doesn't work. This whole model doesn't work. And really, what really makes money is, in fact, um, concerts and real experiences. And that would I think that uh, thesis would tie in very nicely with what you just said about how Spotify is just like busking. If it's busking, of course, you don't make money. And certainly Spotify doesn't make money. So I'm some I'm somebody who likes classical music, but I could never understand vinyl. So I, th I remember uh, us going to a vinyl shop, and you were getting all excited, but I didn't really see the uh, point of it. To me, it seemed. Uh, I mean, I can replicate the entire experience on Spotify, on YouTube, and probably some other um, uh, some other venue. And if I must, I can go to an opera place. But why vinyl? There is a very sentimental attachment to things that you own. Um, I can look through my vinyl collection and remember the memories that I've had associated with the, the particular vinyl that I bought in that particular time period. So owning a, a vinyl 
definitely gives you that additional value where you can you know reflect on what happened in that period of your life and why that vinyl was so special to you that dimension of ownership is really interesting and i think is replicated in in nfts right when you own an nft you suddenly care about it much more than you do with any other song and that really is the reason why nft collectors buy music nfts it's that they feel that you know they want that special connection with the work and there's no other way to do that other than owning part of the work at least and having that part of that work replay um so I think that's the connection to vinyls. I started collecting vinyls because of jazz. I have actually a huge, that's, I wouldn't say huge, but a sizable collection of jazz records that I really love listening to. And the reason why I like jazz is because of the element of improvisation, right? So uh, a very true, a true jazzman, truly talented jazzman uh, would actually know how to improv on the spot and every improv they do would be different and a very uh, beautiful in a very different way. So, uh, you know, I, I really love jazz as a genre. Some genres I've been watching lately have been hyperpop, uh, which is driven by a lot of these uh, millennials or Gen Z uh, who really love sampling and taking their production skills to the next level by putting as many samples as they can into a track and challenging themselves into pushing the limits of what music can do. Uh, that's really interesting to me. Uh, and also the DIY ethic of hyperpop has always been, has, has also been very attractive to me as well. You have already done a couple of drops on your platform. So you already have some experiences. I hope no, no, there haven't been any hiccups. And I suppose there are a couple of uh, music NFT platforms on different chains. There are some on Ethereum, there are some on Solana, and there are some on God knows where. So in your experience, do musicians prefer Solana over the other chains? And I suppose this, uh, if they do, I think this really uh, stands in quite stark contrast with the DeFi people where primitives and new innovations almost always launch themselves on Ethereum just because of the network effects, just because of the uh, existence of whales and the existence of and the fact that is the ETH distribution is much more decentralized. So do they prefer Solana over other chains? And if so, why do they? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that, you know, they have different perspectives on when Solana is good and when Ethereum is good. So some musicians that I've met actually prefer Ethereum because they of the high gas fee. So what they think is, you know, if it's a marketplace with a high gas fee, then it acts like a tax that filters out the bad quality music, right? So in their minds, uh, the argument goes is that if there's a high gas fee, then musicians who aren't serious about getting into Web3 won't use this system to earn money. They won't get sort of like um, drop something low quality and scam, scam the buyer. <clears throat> My view is of course very different. So. so that's the reason why we built Believe on Solana. And we believe that this gating should not be done by the tech. The tech shouldn't really limit the avenue for distribution, but it's the market forces that should dictate which drops are floating to the top and which drops are uh, not so uh, doing so stellar. So we believe in Solana because it really democratizes music distribution. 
anybody from a kid in their own bedroom to a Kanye West can launch their NFT collection on Solana and get a very good reaction because of the low gas fees, the low transaction fees, the very high speeds, uh, the low energy usage, which makes it very sustainable. And finally, a very loving community and very supporting community for NFTs. So it's it's very democratizing in, in, in that way. So I would say that while there are some musicians who think that Ethereum is better, actually most musicians, um, actually most musicians really love, uh, love Solana. While some musicians prefer Ethereum, most musicians really love Solana. So um, I would like to visit uh, this idea about um, busking and Sp uh, Spotify as busking or Web2 as busking a little bit further. I feel like, um, I feel like, like uh, so the way I think about music, the evolutionary uh, history of music and its uh, economy is that, okay, in, the, in classical times, classical times, you uh, all music production is basically financed by aristocrats and kings. Patronage is done through patronage. You, you don't have ordinary musicians. You don't have buskers. Well, you have buskers, but they don't produce any music. And they, their income is literally just um, drawn from the streets, from busking. After that, as technology evolved, you start to have vinyl and music became increasingly democratized, increasingly accessible to other individuals, ordinary people, eventually down to one's, um, down to the, to every echelon of society and in the forms of CDs. And after that, you have streaming, which made it even more accessible, but not just in terms of um, price, but in terms of virality. So the next step here, I kind of feel, think about it, is that um, uh, uh, one could now own music as a financial instrument, as a financial object. So it's no longer just um, labels and record label companies and music companies that own these contracts, these masters that um, control or draw money, draw income from the work of musicians, but um, musicians themselves can own this and their supporters can own this as well. So what do you think about that? Do you see that as a uh, viable or a plausible way forward? Or do you think that that kind of still is still too far away and that the tech is still has not still um, catch up to this um, kind of a fantasy. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that music is definitely an asset that is very new and has a lot of potential. It all boils down to how platforms like Relief and actually a lot of our competitors are doing right with the, with these, with this asset. Um, I think very significantly integration with the metaverse is something that we're very excited about. So, but, you know, a lot of these new, um, a lot of these NFTs represent in-game assets and music could do the same. So by holding mm. music and traveling in these metaverse spaces, you can actually show off your music NFT uh, in, in, a, in a very interesting way, right? You can just play the song and everyone around you will be forced to hear it, right? So this is something that is is very interesting from a metaverse angle. Uh, you know, another way to financialize it is, of course, curation, which is something that we're currently working on. So uh, we think that playlists ultimately offer a lot of discoverability for musicians, but curators 
actually should earn a revenue from their curating the music that they like. And so by tying these music NFTs to curation, we're actually able to uh, allow curators to financialize on these uh, assets. So for example, a curator, a curator might be rewarded whenever they create a playlist that is very, very popular. And the assets that are in this playlist will be working for them. That's a way for, um, you know, uh, music to actually make money for the, uh, the NFT owner. Uh, there have been a lot of talk about streaming as, or, or th there's been a lot of talk about royalty distribution uh, for music NFTs. And at this point, I'm a bit skeptical about. So for example, Royal um, and Opulus are notable platforms that allow for uh, artists to actually put their streaming revenue into music NFTs. I don't really like this model because it is essentially Web3 piggybacking on a legacy infrastructure, an infrastructure that evidently doesn't work. So this is Mona Lisa that is released through Opulus. Uh, a study found that you would actually need 600 years in order for the streaming royalties given to the NFT holder uh, in order to justify the NFT purchase. So that part is actually, uh, it just shows that, you know, even if you were to financialize music NFTs through streaming royalties, it wouldn't really work compared to, you know, the upside of, of flipping NFTs, for example. We are so accustomed to having algorithms. We're so accustomed to living with them and we're so accustomed to um, avoiding them and playing around with them and playing around playing around with them and playing around them that um, it's sort of become a fact of life and curation is really quite a rare thing like when is the last time that you've interacted with a platform in which they feed and in which you actually walk into a library or a playlist or a area where everything inside there is designed by a person but not something that is fed to you by, um, by an algorithm do you think uh, like how do you think uh, a society that um lives with that kind of musical environment is going to evolve. Do you think um, we'll see new kinds of music and how would uh, interactions evolve with there? Yeah. You're, this reminds me of a book that I read called Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, it's a, actually a book that talks about how society is going to be completely dominated by uh, selections or curations or decisions informed by algorithms and uh, you know, machine learning uh, for music is definitely not a good thing. And Spotify knows this because you do see uh, algorithmically generated playlists that actually have very little views. And then you have these editorial playlists that are handpicked by these editors that have a very strong human element. So ultimately for art, it is the humans that, um, that are better at, at choosing, right? So, um, you're right that, you know, if all the art we consume is generated by algorithms, it's not going to be a very attractive or pleasant world to be in. For music, I think there's a platform called A-Tracks that really stands out to me as being a very good example of music curation done right. So A-Tracks used to be this music site that people would... Uh, curate eight tracks to 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 um, 
that people would curate playlists or mixtapes out of eight tracks, and they would share these mixtapes to their friends. And this type of platform is hugely, was hugely popular with musicians and with fans as well, but somehow it didn't make it because the monetization model was simply not there. So uh, in terms of curation, that, that's definitely uh, something to, to watch out for. Yeah, currently Relief is planning a curation model in which NFT collectors can aggregate some of the NFTs that they have and put them in a playlist. And whenever the playlist gets played, uh, the yield on that playlist staking pool will increase, giving them higher yield on a token uh, that is native to our platform. So the advantage of that is that NFT collectors have an incentive to display their music NFTs and actually buy the music NFTs that they know will be popular with their followers and their listeners. And listeners will be incentivized to follow that playlist and value the music NFTs uh, collected by the NFT collector as being more than uh, what it originally was as a single. So this we feel would really enhance artist discoverability and track discoverability. It would also incentivize more musicians to take Web3 music seriously instead of just a cash grab. Because what they can do now is actually sell to collectors and then rely on the, popula uh, the popularity of the collector's playlist in order to justify uh, that sale instead of just treating it as sort of like a quick, quick money grab. I think one thing that the entire NFT industry is trying to figure out is the uh, question of uh, derivatives. Right. So there, there's definitely a two parts to the question. Like, first of all, how to actually implement it on a technological level, how to actually trace the, the, uh, the chain of metadata ref references. So that's that. So, and there's the second question of legality. And one of the, one of the things that I've always felt is that derivatives um, should not be uh, like people should not be prosecuting whoever is making derivatives out of your work because um, they're definitely adding more attention to what you have and 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 I think one of the one of the clearest economic laws that we've seen so far in the NFT space is that N derivatives n never flip the original if you take a look at the uh, myriad of de derivative um, NFT collections of, say, for example, the Bo Bored Ape or Azuki or uh, Punks, none of the derivatives um, flip the original. Everybody knows the original is the one that matters, whereas the derivatives are really just for fun and just for um, well, just for being into the same community. So what do you think about music in that sense? Like um, one of the things that I found quite interesting, I read quite recently, is that uh, apparently... Dujinshi in uh, Dujinshi manga in Japan, they so basically the derivative works, the derivative works of the original manga, but the law is written such that Dujinshi are considered shin kokuzai under Japanese copyright law, which means that unless the original copyright holder take, uh, goes through the trouble to actually uh, file a complaint, the government is not actually going to uh, pro, uh, prosecute you. So mm -hmm. Do you think we're going to see some kind of a legal um, paradigm evolving along these lines? And do you think um, uh, derivative music derivative NFTs are going to be a thing? Or do you think that um, in a short run is just going to be a lot of regulatory uh, heavy lifting and is not going to be that much of a thing? Uh, people often forget 
that a lot of music is derivative of previous work. So, for example, a lot of Western music is actually derived from Western music theory. For example, a lot of these classical works by great classical composers do reference back to the Baroque period, just like the Romantic composers reference back to the classical period. So there's definitely a lot of copying, if you will, um, to previous composers and musicians. If you have that take place on a Web3, uh, if, if you have that takes place on a Web3 setting, what you have is actually music derivatives that can keep referencing each other. Hip hop is a very good genre to take a look at this. So a lot of hip hop tracks are basically rappers rapping over an instrumental made by another producer. So what Web3 enables is for the beat maker to create an instrumental and issue it as an NFT. And rappers can actually rap over that track, that instrumental track, and create a derivative of that instrumental. Many rappers can do this. And as a result, you have one instrumental being the original work, and then many derivative works that can stand on their own. So I think Web3 and specifically NFTs are able to facilitate that sort of creativity. So on your point about you know, whether musicians will prosecute on derivative work, I think it really boils down to the legal culture of whether to sue. I think uh, what you talked about in terms of doujinshi is very interesting. Um, it's not that the, mus uh, the artists don't have a right to sue, it's that they exercise their discretion and facilitate that sort of culture of copying and referencing um, instead of taking that asshole move, right? So for, uh, for America, for example, the legal culture is such that if you have a right, if your right is being infringed, there must be a remedy that follows. And I suppose, you know, if we really want art to move forward, then lawyers should stop doing that and uh, allow for secondary creator creators to do what they want to do. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I definitely sympathize with that. I uh, The example I always want to talk about when it comes to derivative works and the cultural impact it can have is like um, our own uh, reservoir of Cantonese pop songs, for example, as we all both know, a lot of Cantonese pop songs are literally just the same song in Japanese, but with the lyrics rewritten. Yeah. And and these Japanese uh, songs are often um, modified versions of Enka, which are themselves a hybrid of uh, kabuki music and jazz, which is fantastic. So yeah, absolutely. I think what you talked about in terms of canto pop is uh, is really something that Hong Kongers or people who speak Cantonese should pay attention to. So the golden age of canto pop was actually when there was most referencing to Japanese songs. So for example, the canto pop idols that we love today, like Leslie, uh, Leslie Cheung, um, you know, Alan Tam, uh, we all love him. Um, yeah, and, and Anita Mui—they're they're all uh, basically referencing, you know, the, the Japanese music industry. And there's nothing wrong with that because the Japanese composers love it when these canto pop 
singers take their work and uh, give it new life, right? So, you know, towards the 80s and 90s, there was this para, uh, there was this hesitance to keep referencing or copying Japanese works. And actually coinciding with this ban or this, um, you know, the end of covering Japanese songs in, in Cantonese was also the start of the decline of canto pop. So mm. I see the reluctance to learn from other cultures and learn from other uh, types of music as signaling the demise of canto pop in a way. You were in the Solana conference in Lisbon that some time ago, but I'm sure you still um, reminisce over that period of time. How was the experience and uh, what did you learn from there? Did you meet any people? Yeah, it was really fun. So a lot of the crypto native people uh, and a lot of the people that I look up to that I used to only see on Twitter, I saw in real life, right? So these crazy projects uh, and projects that we actually look up to, like Great Protocol, we met in person. Um, we met the guys from Audius at the party that they were hosting. And we also met a lot of these heroes of ours uh, at the Salon conference. We also met a few competitors. So uh, we, we sort of traded insights on how we think the music NFT space should go. And, uh, you know, the technologies that would actually assist us in implementing that vision. So I remember talking to one of the guys at Block Damon who challenged us about the idea of a circle NFT, right? So what they were saying is like, mm. um, musicians are only doing one sale of that circle NFT, but it's not giving them a sustainable income that would be conducive to their creativity, right? So for example, Patreon offers this subscription model for fans to subscribe to and creators can just get a passive income from that. And so he challenged us to discover new ways of allowing creators to monetize. So, I mean, down the road, we might actually implement a subscription-based model for uh, Relief Circles. But definitely, you know, there, there are a lot of sparring, a lot of, uh, you know, pushing our understanding of music NFTs and how we want to develop our platform. And so I think it was very beneficial towards our development. That is definitely uh, very interesting because it definitely shows that people still are figuring out what is a model to actually implement this thing. Everybody knows we want to get music onto Web3, but it's yeah. not clear how to do it. And this idea of a subscription model is definitely one of the uh, problems, the problems that people are trying to solve in, in crypto with uh, either content encryption, with renting and so on and so forth. Do you have any views on that? Yeah, I think renting is definitely a very exciting way for artists to monetize. So renting, for example, allows for the holder, the owner of an NFT to generate income from the consumption of that NFT. So, um, you know, NFT renting would apply to video very well, for example. Uh, so uh, the owner of a video NFT would be able to rent this video out to a person who wants to see that film or see that short film and they would be able to generate an, an income off of it. So a lot of these films, uh, cult films specifically, are actually lost because streaming platforms don't have incentive to include them onto their platform. Um, so renting would actually solve a lot of those problems. Music could work with renting, but it would involve renting out an entire library. So I envision, you know, uh, 
for example, a city pop artist from Japan who doesn't have their back catalog on Spotify or any of those streaming services because they believe it downgrades their work, which is uh, definitely true, right? So what they could do is actually publish their entire back catalog onto Relief or any sort of NFT marketplace or NFT platform. And then to listen to their work, you would have to pay a fee to rent the NFT. That's something that we're very excited about and uh, might explore down the line. Yeah, but um, there are definitely, as I understand, there are definitely some technical difficulties there and that everybody is trying to solve. So it would be very exciting to see you uh, come up with some new ideas over there. Speaking of ideas, can you take um, Yeah, go on. I think, you know, Cardinal is one of the projects that we've been watching. Uh, I think they've done a phenomenal job doing conditional ownership of NFTs. So conditional ownership just means that you own the NFT insofar as this condition is fulfilled. And it assists and helps the renting model because you can set a condition such that you own the NFT insofar as uh, you're in this time period, right? So mm-hmm. you would have a, a time limit to how, how long you own that wrapped NFT that the platform gives you. And then that wrapped NFT would be destroyed and the original NFT would be back in its place. That's something very interesting, and I think Cardinal does very well. So can you introduce us to the rest of your team, and how did you come to put this uh, put this team together? Yeah. My co-founder, Aaron, and I met about two to three years ago when I was first starting out with investing. He had, been, he had already been investing in several projects, notably basic attention token. I think he invested in ZRX at early stage. So he's very experienced investor. Uh, actually just two days ago, I got to know that he actually wrote uh, part of the Wikipedia article for Ethereum Classic, which is very interesting. So, I mean, he's a very interesting person. Also uh, glues the tech team together very, very well. Uh, everyone on our tech team respects him a lot and he's able to drive the product forward. Uh, the rest of the tech team, Bradley Cooper, uh, very amazing dev, in charge of the front end. He's done many projects out of Web3, so he has a Web2 background primarily, but he's been very fast in picking up uh, you know, smart contract development, blockchain development. We have Ricky, who's our blockchain engineer. He used to do Rust. Uh, he's fluent in Golang, um, and also uh, he's picked up Solana in a very short span of time. So all the devs are definitely uh, people we look up to very much. We also have business developers like Steven and Kenneth, who are uh, band, uh, who were in a band before. They really like rock music. They really like electronic music. They have a wide palette of music tastes. And we can often you know, just talk about music. And it's really fun. So what is the next step for Relief? You guys have already launched. You're already doing a couple of drops. So what is the next step? The next step, the immediate next step for Relief would be to launch our exchange. So NFTs wouldn't be complete if you couldn't trade them on a secondary market. So uh, we have built our launch pad and we have a pipeline of artists that are waiting to launch. These artists would have an additional income stream if the NFT was being traded and they could get a royalty from the resale. So that's something that we're very, very excited about. The Relief Circles is also something that we're working very hard on. 
currently, you can only display the NFT collections that you own or the launches that you have created if you're a musician. I think a few weeks down the line, we'll have this feature roll out in which a user can actually publish some posts in the form of pictures, polls, or uh, just written word, uh, and sell and share them to the people who follow them. And so if you're a musician, you're also able to choose which posts are viewable by the general public, i.e. everyone, or uh, just the NFT holders that hold your music NFTs. So these two are the most immediate developments that we'll have out in the coming two months. Um, we have a plan to make a curation model, which is that NFT collectors can actually have some of the collected NFTs put in a playlist and that playlist shared to their friends. We'll have a way of incentivizing these collectors to curate the music that they love into a very musically coherent way so that when they share their playlist and people listen to it, they're going to earn rewards from it. This is something that we're excited about as well. We also have an upcoming partnership uh, where potentially Solus will collaborate with us to actually have a music venue on the metaverse so that musicians can actually launch and debut their tracks in the metaverse setting. This would make track debut very, very exciting for fans and musicians alike. So it just, that's our plan for the next six months. Great. I think that's the, all the time we have. So thank you, William, for coming onto the podcast. And I hope um, our listeners have really um, gotten a new perspective on how music NFTs are going to go down the road. So if you find this interesting, please subscribe and turn on notifications. Definitely follow Relief on their Twitter, Medium, and Discord. And of course, try out their platform. They're definitely on. So um, you can try it out on Relief.io, I believe. So stay tuned. We'll see you soon again, very soon. Bye-bye.